you have your Bible with you, would you open to Daniel chapter 5 this morning? Daniel chapter 5. We're going to handle that entire chapter this morning, but I need, I need some help real quick. Uh, I'm going to say a phrase, and then I need you guys to repeat it. The judgment of God. And now you're very excited for this sermon. And so, um, happy Sunday. Welcome to the good news of the judgment of God. Uh, years ago, before I was a pastor... Uh, I was working for a company in Northern California where we would have regular leadership trainings. One of the things we wanted to make sure of with our leadership teams was that they were um, regularly connecting with their employees. We wanted to make sure that our employees didn't go very long without being connected with a leader. And then we wanted to make sure that our leaders were continually equipped to better uh, handle their positions as leaders. And so regularly we would meet and, and have these leadership trainings. And, and every time we had a leadership training, there was a, a phrase that continued to be spoken over and over and over again. And that phrase was, it doesn't matter what you've done for them. It only matters what you've done for them lately. It doesn't matter what you've done for them. It only matters what you've done for them lately. And so it didn't matter if two weeks ago you went out of your way to work overtime to make sure that they could finish their shift. What have you done for them today? It doesn't matter if you worked really hard to get this person promoted. What have you done for them today? What have you done for them lately? The reason that this was regularly in our messaging at this company was because we knew, we absolutely knew that humans have a goldfish memory. That they are just very focused on what is right in front of them at that very time. And what we were starting to see and what we would notice is that we would have great employees that after a period of three, four, five, six months, sometimes three, four, five, six years, would become out of nowhere disgruntled with the company. And the reason was is because they could not point to something that their leader, their direct leader, had done for them lately. Interesting, isn't it? That this had to be just a constant constant, constant reminder amongst our leadership teams. What have you done for me lately? Whether we will admit it or not, many of us have that very same short-term memory when it comes to God. What has He done for me lately? What's He done for me lately? doesn't matter what God's done for me in the past. What has he done for me lately? Maybe you're in here and you're, you're saying, Austin, I don't, I don't have that. Well, let me just give some examples. You've been working really hard on a project at work and everything falls apart. And your direct response is, God, why would you let that happen? Maybe that's not it. Maybe you really don't relate to your job that well. You, you really don't care what happens at work, which we'll talk about that later, but at another sermon. Maybe the relationship you're in goes wrong. Everything seemed to be going right, and you would put all your chips in. You're like, this is the one 
maybe you've been married to this individual for years and you're like, this is it. And then you just start to notice a gradual decline. And you think to yourself, God, where are you here? Why aren't you doing something for me here? Or maybe, and this is the more common one that I see, you've lived your entire life with perfect health. And one day, you get a report from the doctor. And your response is, God, how could you let this happen to me? Maybe you've been desiring something for quite some time and it just continually is out of reach and you're devastated, wondering, where is God? Why is He not coming through? Why isn't He speaking to me? All of us have a mentality towards God that is deeply rooted in what has He done for me lately? What has He done for me lately? Some of these things can be good things, right? None of us should desire that we would have poor health. If you do, you should see someone about that. That's a problem. None of us should desire that our jobs would fall apart. None of us should desire that our dreams would fail. None of us should desire that our relationships would fail. These things can be really good things, but when they're wrongly oriented things, they become destructive things. Because when we put them on the throne of our life, here's what happens. God becomes a sacrificial offering who is only supposed to work towards the end of my desires. Instead of the sovereign Lord of it all, we make him a means to an end. Here's how you know if you have made God a means to an end in your life. How do you respond to God when something you want doesn't happen? How do you respond to God when something you want doesn't happen? This is, whether we admit it or not, most of our lives, things that we had hoped for falling through, things that we had desired not happening, if you're wondering if we're one of those churches that's going to tell you that become a Christian and everything's prosperity, that's not what we're going to tell you. <laughs> Life is often disappointment. How do we respond in the face of disappointment? And how we respond in it tells us a whole lot about what we believe about God. Have we made him a means to an end? The reason why I, I'm saying this is because often when God becomes a means to an end, it creates entitlement in us. God, you should have done this for me. I deserved this. Why didn't you show up? What have you done for me lately? Interesting, isn't it, how our hearts work? It's interesting. We, we desire that God would do exactly what we want when we want it, and if he doesn't, we're wondering where he's at. Fascinating. The goldfish memory of the human being. What have you done for me lately? 
And that response, one of entitlement to the Most High God, is really, if we're honest with ourselves, a response of arrogant indifference towards who He is that is built out of a deeply rooted belief that He has not served us enough to be worthy of worship. This is why I didn't want to preach through Daniel. Because it hits. It hurts. We, we wrestle with these things. We hear these things and we wonder to ourselves, what, <laughs> what have we believed our entire lives? In, in fact, when, when that moment comes where we're asking the question, what have you done for me lately? What we're really saying is that if God doesn't worship me, he's not God. And the story we're entering into today is a story of an individual who walks out this belief of arrogant indifference towards God that leads to destruction. We need some work to help us understand what's happening in this chapter, in Daniel chapter 5, before we read it. I think that it'll be helpful if we do this. Uh, we're in a section of Scripture, chapters 2 through 7 of Daniel, that are working together. In chapter 2 and in chapter 7, you have a vision of four kingdoms and God's eternal kingdom. In chapters 3 and chapter 6, you see God delivering his people from the hand of temporary kingdoms. And then in chapters 4 and 5, we have two kings with two responses to the mighty hand of God. Two temporary kings responding to God's judgment over their situation. And the text in this section of Scripture of chapters 2 through 7 is driving us to look at these two similar stories that end with two very different responses and to draw understanding from them. So last week, I, I don't have time to preach Daniel chapter 4, but in case you weren't here and you didn't listen to the sermon, uh, last week was a story of a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar learned about the eternal power of God. At the time, he was really the most powerful man in the known world, and, and he is proud of that. He is proud of his power. And God humbles him because of his pride. He becomes a literal beast. If you have not listened to that sermon, I would encourage you to go listen to it. It will be helpful for today. So Nebuchadnezzar becomes a, a literal beast, and in this, this humbling of the Lord, he turns and he responds with humble belief. In fact, the, the last portion of Daniel chapter 4 is, is really what we could call worship and repentance. Nebuchadnezzar goes from the beginning of chapter 4 with this just firm belief that he was incredible, that he was the ruler of the world, and at the end of chapter 4, he is turning the glory from himself and putting it where it rightly belongs on God. Repentance, belief, he, he's turning from his sin of pride, humbled before the mighty hand of God. 
He's aware of his temporary power at the end of chapter 4 and God's eternal power. He's aware of God's sovereignty over all things. He just knows that he did not make himself or save himself. If it were up to God, he would have been a beast in a field for the rest of his days. Or if it were up to him, he would have been a beast in the field for the rest of his days. He needed God to save him. He, and he emerges from this humbling experience totally dependent and completely aware of God's grace to restore him. Completely aware of it. But his is not the only story we see in this section of Scripture. In chapter 5, we have a different king. In fact, if you read chapter 5, verse 1, which we'll get to in a second, the first two words are King Belshazzar. Who is that? We've been in Daniel for four weeks now, and we have never once heard this name. Who is King Belshazzar? Well, it might surprise some of you, but King Nebuchadnezzar died. Uh, he grew old, and he passed. After his passing, there was turmoil. There was about three different kings in the period of five years, roughly. And after that five-year period, another king came and took the throne, uh, one of Nebuchadnezzar's descendants, a man by the name of Nabonidus. Say that 30 times fast. Nabonidus. And Nabonidus reigns for about 16 years. In fact, he is the king on the throne for most of the rest of Babylon's history. He reigns for 16 years, and in that period of time, he moves the capital of Babylon from where it currently resides to a place called Tema, about 50 miles away. But he needs to leave someone in charge. So he picks his son. His son, who in our text is the name King Belshazzar. Belshazzar is put on the throne in Babylon, and he is a king, not of his own making, not of anything that he has done, but simply because he happened to be in the right place at the right time, or maybe the right place at the wrong time, as we read our passage this morning. So Nabonidus, he's moved the capital over to Tema, and, and he's he is in Tema, about 50 miles away, and, and what's just happened before this chapter chronologically, if we were to look at extra-biblical resources, we'd be able to see that Nabonidus has been defeated by Cyrus, who is the ruler of the Medo-Persian army. Why does this matter? Like, what does this have to do with you today? So Cyrus and the, the Medo-Persian army are literally outside of the city of Babylon where King Belshazzar is ruling. They've begun a siege against Babylon. That matters. That is where we pick up the text today, where Babylon is being besieged by Cyrus, who has already defeated the current king of Babylon and the Babylonian army. And now we get to see what Belshazzar is up to in that moment. If you have your Bible, Daniel chapter 5. Remember, Cyrus outside the walls. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. 
What a great introduction. This man who has an army at his gates decides this is the right time to throw a party. Let's continue reading. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father or predecessor, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite of the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the, astro of the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let the king be called... Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless... I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly 
he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of this house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In verses 1 through 4, what we're seeing clearly on display is Belshazzar is mocking God. The army is outside the gates. Here they come to overtake Babylon. And what does Belshazzar do? He throws a party. He throws a party. He's not scrambling for ways to defeat the army, he's not even crying out for help from God or his various gods. He's getting drunk. And notice with me at the text, he's getting drunk while other people watch. What a fascinating scenario. What kind of pride would you have to hold on to to say, why don't you come to this party and watch me drink for a while? Armies outside the gates. He invites a thousand government officials to watch as he gets drunk. Interesting king. After he's a little bit tipsy, he gets this brilliant idea. He gets this brilliant idea. He says, you know what? Let's show off the power of Babylon. So go to the treasury, pull out all of the vessels of gold and silver that my predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, took from that backwater country of Jerusalem. Go bring all of those out here, and we're going to drink from them to show that other nations' gods don't even hold a candle to us. We'll show off what we do to other nations and their supposed God. We have power that even this 
God doesn't have. Look at what other nations we've overcome and outlasted. This Cyrus won't stand a chance. Bring me the gold and the silver of Jerusalem. And I'm going to keep drinking. And you know what? You're all going to join me. He's mocking God. He's saying, this God doesn't have power. We overtook his nation. Bring the gold and the silver. Let's toast to us. He toasts to their own gods, but what we're very familiar with after five weeks in this book is that the gods of Babylon are really just the gods of the king. Whoever the king thinks they should worship, usually himself. And so the king is saying, I'm more powerful. Interesting. We're seeing in this text an arrogant man, a prideful man. He's looking at Babylon and saying, what has God done for me lately? Nothing. Bring his silver and gold. Worship me. And God confronts him. In chapters five, or in verses 5 through 12, God confronts Belshazzar. God confronts him, and an invisible hand shows up and, and writes a message on the wall. And, and if you're familiar with the entire narrative of Scripture, here's what we know. God will not be mocked. He won't. And so the text goes to incredible effort to mock Belshazzar in the next seven verses. Notice with me, his color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way. His knees knocked together. This is comical. They're making fun of Belshazzar's fear in this moment. This prideful man sees writing on the wall and is weakened at the knees. Interesting. Within one verse, Belshazzar goes from arrogant partier to shaking in his boots. The text is mocking him now. So he calls to all of his wise men, as we've seen happen in the book of Daniel so far, and every time that happens, like they pedal them out. Here's the wisdom of the world on display, and guess what? The wisdom of the world, not enough. And so they pedal them back off, and they pedal in the one who brings the wisdom of God. It's the continued narrative in the book of Daniel that the wisdom of the world is not enough. It won't work for understanding the wisdom of God. And so luckily, there's someone in the king's court who remembers a little bit further back than Belshazzar does. And she says, King, you've got to remember Daniel who, who led out the wisdom of God for your father or your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. He has an excellent spirit that's in him for understanding dreams. And so they call Daniel. And the king calls Daniel. And what we're going to see in the next section of verses, verses 13 through 31, is an explanation, indifference, and demise. The king tells Daniel, he says, I will make you third in command if you can interpret the writing on the wall. Which is... This is what's interesting about this. Why does he have to choose third in command? Because he's second in command. His father just got whooped in battle. He doesn't know if he's alive or not, but he knows that 
Persia's outside. I can't make Daniel third in command. I can't make him second in command. I can make him third. So it's just like making fun of this dude's grasp at power. It's making fun of his arrogance. And while the king can't read the writing on the wall, we see from Daniel's response that he can. Daniel sees the, the Persian army outside the city, and he knows that this king really has nothing to offer him. He denies what the king has to offer. He responds by recounting the story of Nebuchadnezzar, who became a beast. And he repeats the refrain from chapter 4 with, The Most High God rules over the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And this is the most striking statement in this chapter, and it comes from these words. And you, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew. The excuse for Belshazzar is not, God just didn't humble me like a beast. That doesn't exist. Though you knew all this, you lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. This is important. Belshazzar is not ignorant when it comes to God. He's arrogant when it comes to God. And so God puts the writing on the wall, and Daniel interprets it in verses 26 through 28. And this is the writing that was inscribed. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Pedes, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, if we're, if we're carefully reading the book of Daniel, we'd think that after the vision of God and the interpretation of the man who carries the wisdom of God, we would assume that the response would be that of turning in worship to God. That's been the response in chapters 2, 3, and 4 from Nebuchadnezzar. Vision, interpretation. Situation, God shows up. Dream, interpretation. Response of worship. And so we think that's what's going to happen here. Right? He's seen God literally right on the wall with a hand. Maybe this is the moment where Belshazzar turns. And he's supernaturally drunk with the spirit instead of the spirits. And then he turns and he goes after the Medo-Persian Empire and Babylon stands another day. That's not what happens. That's not what happens. Look at this. Verse 29, he gives Daniel what he promised. He affirms that Daniel interpreted the vision correctly. 
gives Daniel what he promises. But no turn, no response, no worship. In fact, all we see from the king, from the rest of the chapter, is silence. Why does that silence matter? Because what the text is trying to get us to see, that in his lack of response, he was dead before he was dead. Because even though he understands the writing on the wall, he is completely indifferent to it. He doesn't seem to care. And then we see verses 30 through 31. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom and being about 62 years old. This is fascinating. This is fascinating. It's fascinating for one because I've said Cyrus for the entire sermon and it's actually Darius, so my bad. Um, Cyrus comes up later in the book. But it's fascinating for a whole other reason. In Babylon, there's a river that goes through the city. And so while... Darius and the army are, are besieging the city. They send some men up the river to block off the flow of water in through the city of Babylon. So they block off the flow of water in through the city of Babylon, and then they walk in the wet creek bed under the walls of Babylon, and they take the city in the night in silence. walked into the city like a thief in the night, overtook it from the inside. And it's that very night in his sleep that Belshazzar is killed. So what do we, what do we make of this, right? I mean, what do we do with that? Where do we go from there? Here's this king arrogant indifference to God, killed in his sleep. What do we have to say to that? Well, I think what the original readers would have understood from this and, and partnering it with chapter 4, I think they would have understood that arrogant indifference to Yahweh will be met with divine judgment. Happy Sunday. We even got some <laughs> gloom outside. Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary on this passage, says this. He says, Pay attention to what Belshazzar teaches you. Having clear information does not guarantee the right response. He knew all of this, but did not humble his heart. So having good data does not necessarily bring about the required change, yet Western culture assumes that it will. Political and social gurus preach the information fallacy constantly. The knee-jerk reaction to any social problem seems to be, well, we must educate people. 
This often means we throw money at it, construct a bureaucracy to oversee it, and try to fund it in some budget. But it's all built on the assumption that education will bring transformation. If people only knew what happens when they don't use seatbelts, then. If youth only knew what drugs will do to them, then. But Daniel's point is that Belshazzar knew, and it didn't matter. It didn't matter. We see a similar story to this in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. It's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. You see, the rich man, he has it all. He is healthy, wealthy, and wise. And Lazarus is the man who sits outside of the rich man's house begging for crumbs from the table. Lazarus dies in this story. It's a parable, so this is imaginative. It's not literal. Let's hear that. Lazarus dies. He ends up in heaven. The rich man dies, and, and he ends up in Hades or in hell. And the rich man in the parable looks across the chasm into heaven, and he says, Lazarus, Father Abraham, send Lazarus with water for my tongue. Quench my thirst. In hell, he still desires to treat Lazarus like a servant. It's the most amazing thing happening. He's in hell in this parable, and he isn't asking how to get across the chasm into heaven. He's just concerned with his own situation. <laughs> Bring me water. Comfort me. Lazarus, come out of heaven. Come into hell. And then at the end of the story, in, in this story, I'm going to read it for us because it's incredible. The rich man is, is in hell, and, and he says this. This is a parable that Jesus tells. It's fascinating. Father Abraham says to him, you can't. Chasm's been fixed. No one can cross it. And so the rich man responds, Then I beg you to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham responds and he says, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What a striking statement this man makes. He insinuates that God just didn't give him enough information and that's why he didn't believe. <laughs> that's why he's in hell. Send a dead man to my brothers. If they had more information than I did, then maybe they'd repent. And what is the response? Even if they had all the information in the world, they wouldn't repent. Like many of us just believe that if we knew more, if God could show up for us right now, if God could literally walk the earth as Jesus incarnate again here in 2022, then everyone would believe. But that's just not the narrative that we see in Scripture. And that's not the reality of our lives either. 
Like we just believe that if we knew more, if others knew more, then maybe they'd repent. But with the story of Belshazzar and then what the story of the rich man in Luke chapter 16 are telling us is that there are those who will not respond to God even if a dead man walked among them and told them to believe. This isn't a text about evangelism, so I don't want to spend a ton of time here, but it's important to note that Daniel still preaches to the king who won't repent. This is not an excuse for us to say, well, we shouldn't preach the gospel, those who, those who don't hear it. It doesn't matter if they hear it, they're not going to respond. That's not what this text is telling us. This isn't excusing us from preaching, but it is helping us to see that just because we have knowledge does not necessarily mean we will respond correctly. And Romans 1 talks about that. In Romans 1, 18 and 19, it talks about righteous judgment. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Belshazzar had every opportunity, every opportunity to repent and believe in the kingdom of God. But his arrogant indifference led to divine judgment. Friends, what chapters 4 and 5 are trying to get us to see is that there are only two responses to God. Humble belief or arrogant indifference. There's no middle ground. There's no, well, if somebody would have just preached the gospel to me one more time, there's no, well, if Belshazzar could have slept on it, then maybe he would have woken up the next morning and repented. There's only two responses. And that's, that's the narrative throughout the Gospels. That's the narrative throughout the book of Acts. That's the narrative throughout the whole New Testament. Jesus rises again, and what's the option? Belief, repentance, or rejection? No such thing as an indifferent response. There are only two responses to God, humble belief or arrogant indifference. Humble belief is God is not, God is God and I am not and we respond in submission to Him, worship of Him and a true understanding of our own frailty. That's the proper response to a, a holy God as He reveals Himself to us. But, arrogant indifference is essentially saying God has not done enough for me to believe He's God. God might be God, but it doesn't affect me in any way, shape, or form. In fact, if God really wanted me to believe, then He'd reveal Himself to me right now. He'd write on that very wall with His hand. And what this text is telling us is that it wouldn't matter. God became flesh and walked the earth and people didn't believe. And 
when Jesus come, he comes, he preaches the gospel. He says, repent and believe in the kingdom. The, the good news of the kingdom is at hand. And for those who see Jesus for who he is, this is God's promise to you that Jesus has taken God's divine judgment on your behalf in the cross of Christ. But here's what I know in a room this size that there are people in here who have no intention of believing even if God in this very moment came and wrote on the wall. Some of us feel like God is a means to an end. We, we find ourselves constantly asking, what has he done for me lately? Unless he does something for me right now, I can't believe. And all of us, when measured in the scales of God. God's perfection will be found wanting in the invitation for us today, my friends, as the writing is on the wall before us, is to repent and believe. Because the option is humble belief, which says, God's God, I'm not. He knows, he understands, he's the Lord of it all. His kingdom is eternal, his kingdom is everlasting. All his ways are just, all his ways are righteous. Or, I don't know that I trust this God guy. What has he done for me lately? It's only two options. Only two responses. Humble belief or arrogant indifference. So I could spend the rest of this sermon attempting to convince you to believe. But here's what I think we need to do instead. I think we just need to spend a couple minutes in prayer. And, and prayer in silence. We're not trying to manipulate responses but we just want to take an honest look. An honest look. God offers a way out through the cross that in His holiness, there's a way for you and me. Humble belief that we desperately need a Savior, that God is God and we are not. And that's available to each and every one of us in this room. And friends, if your response is one of arrogant indifference, this is a dangerous game to be playing. God will not be mocked. And there is no guarantee of tomorrow. So Lord, I pray that you would lead us. God, for those in this room who have responded with humble belief, I pray that you would comfort our hearts right now with the gospel.
You are not a means to an end. You are the end. And you have made a way through your blood shed on the cross. Comfort our hearts now, Lord. those in this room who are, are hearing this and are just saying, I just don't, I don't think it's true. I just want to plead and beg. Repent and believe. Lord, as we search our hearts for a moment to, to find the true state of where you are, would you help us to know and understand and respond accordingly? God, in all your ways, you are just. In all your ways, you are righteous. None of us can look at this passage and say, what has God done? Why didn't he give him another opportunity? For all your works are right. All your ways are just. And those who walk in pride, you are able to humble. So, Lord, we pray that you would humble us under the mighty hand of God. In your name we pray. Amen.